0: To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org.
1: Hello. uh, This is Peter Betke from George Mason University and the Mercatus Center. And today we're going to have a conversation between uh, Dick Wagner and myself over the research program in political economy um, associated with James Buchanan and F.A. Hayek and their uh, interactions as well as their uh, tensions between their two projects. So uh, I have uh, with me today, Professor Richard Wagner, who's the Harris Professor of Economics here at George Mason University. Uh, So thanks for coming on, Dick.
2: Well, thank you for inviting me, I'm delighted to be here. Yeah.
1: So uh, both Professor Wagner and I have in the last year Uh, written uh, books that uh, are attempts to summarize the research programs, uh, first of Jim Buchanan, and then myself, I wrote one on Hayek, and so I want to start by first asking uh, uh, Dick to talk about a little bit about the Buchanan uh, project in your book on, it's called uh, uh, James M. Buchanan and Liberal Political Economy, and could you explain a little bit about how you conceive of the Liberal Political Economy project in Buchanan?
2: No, certainly the subtitle of the book is titled a rational reconstruction and what I meant by that is I felt that Buchanan's pretty much his entire body of work had a core to it that goes back to his very first article published in 1949 in that article he wanted to develop a theory or an orientation about democratic government that would that would spring that would go forward into what I later called a giant oak tree to use that image that is to say that he wanted to explain how how it would be possible truly to speak of democracy as a system of self-government in contrast to A system of government where some people ruled over other people and so Buchanan took that ideal of democracy utterly totally seriously and asked what would that imply for a theory of political economy and in exploring that kind of set of concerns that led him into all kinds of topics starting with his work in public finance He did, among other things, work in federal forms of government as ways of trying to dig into this self-government problem. It led into his concerns with social philosophy in terms of questions about uh, what would be the qualities of good systems of government uh, versus bad systems of government. It led to his 20-volume set of works that Liberty Fund published in 1999 or 2000 and which wasn't even his complete set of works it was just the uh, predominant set of works and uh, he was Buchanan was about 20 years younger than Hayek they were uh, but they both had very similar kinds of concerns about economics <coughs> as being far broader than neoclassical economics But rather, I think, in both those uh, scholars' visions, economics was the core of a general social science and uh, organized through the principles of economizing action. Yeah. Yeah, Buchanan has a, a line in What Should Economists Do
1: where he refers to the standard approach that had come to dominate in the Samuelson error as nonsensical social science. He says, surely this is nonsensical social science, meaning the maximizing perfect competition model as opposed to the exchange uh, kind of approach. I wanted to follow up a little bit on two things of that. And, and let me state both questions and then you answer them the way you want. Um, one of the, the claims that is both striking at some level, but also once you hear it, makes perfect sense in your book is the claim that Buchanan is really not a neoclassical economist in the same way that we think of that, but is a continuation of the classical uh, school of economics with the benefit of the Marginalist Revolution and the Subjectivist Revolution. And and I hope maybe you can elaborate that some. But then also I want to reach back into your own work, which is in your book, Mind, Society, and Human Action. Um, And it's the relationship between that and how you see also liberal political economy developing out of the stream of works that you've done over the last uh, decade or so, which includes not only Mind, Society, and Human Action, but also your work on fiscal sociology and the other books, as well as the book on uh, the uh, uh, entangled political economy. So I know that's a lot of <laughs> there, but if you could start with just the classical economics one and then go to the relationship between your understanding of the economic project and where it goes with with political economy.
2: Okay, let me start with the classical economics and take a breath and see yeah. where we go from there. That, um Classical political economy and Frank Knight, James Buchanan, and also Hayek. That if you say that the neoclassical movement began with the marginal revolution in 1871, and that led, I think, inadvertently at first to a very severe narrowing of what economics was all about. Because the construction the theoretical construction of societies in the neoclassical period was dominated by the concept of a general system in equilibrium whereas in the classical period you didn't have that conception you had a conception of societies as basically orderly but the orderliness was not a form of equilibrium i have often used the distinction between a parade and a crowd of pedestrians uh, leaving a stadium those are both orderly social configurations uh, but the orderliness of a parade is set forth by the parade marshal it's a planned order the orderliness of a pedestrian crowd is generated through the internal actions and choices of the participants in that parade. And you would explain that orderliness not by virtue of the parade marshals plan, but mostly in terms of the conventions and the uh, standards of concern for one another that people have. But there, but even the pedestrian crowd, is an orderly configuration in the sense that as a member of that crowd you can pretty well get to where you want to go pretty much on time and that uh, <coughs> that kind of orderliness is different though from the orderliness of a of a parade <coughs> the only thing that can go wrong in a parade are such things as a uh, a uh, member of the band dropping his trombone, uh, stuff like that. Otherwise, you can set your watch by what's passing by, and the parade marshal can tell you what unit is going by at what particular time. With the uh, pedestrian crowd, the is still it's still orderly, but it's not a planned order. It's a self-organized order, and I think that orderliness, however, also means there is turbulence in crowds not every person gets to where he or she wants to be exactly on time and every once in a while, there'll be some bumping some jostling from time to time and that kind of turbulence i would submit is a really a far superior way of thinking about societies than is general equilibrium because all societies are living turbulent kinds of systems that mostly work but a good part of that working quality of societies is due to the institutional artifacts and configurations that people deal with such things as how do we go about liquidating businesses selling businesses bankruptcy proceedings and all these kinds of things are recognitions of how we are going to have to, one of the things we're going to have to be able to do is to readjust our commercial plans uh, in response to the activities of other people. And that was the, very much the classical program prior to its neutering, I would say, by the coming of the neoclassical yeah. period dominated by general equilibrium.
1: Yeah. Um, I love the way that you think about these things. Um, and I understand a lot of that is currently going on in your new project on macroeconomics. So we'll come back to that, but I think the way that you were just talking about orderliness, as you were talking about, I, I kept on thinking of your presidential address to the Society for Development of Austrian Economics, which was on Viennese Kaleidics and uh, this vision. So maybe we can finish with that and talk about this most recent book that you're working on. But <clears throat> let me go back a little bit farther. And I guess they're interconnected, so it's gonna come back to this theme quite a bit. But I, I, uh, when you wrote Mind, Society, and Human Action, and then the other uh, works that led up to uh, the Entangled uh, *The uh, Politics as a Peculiar Business book, um, a lot of that's driven in your intellectual uh, grappling with Pareto, I, I, I believe. And I think that's why the title Mind and Society is an important part of your, in that project. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit about Pareto's own shift from standard optimality conditions into economics, into uh, more of the sociology aspects dovetails with what the story that you were just telling there as well.
2: No, well, certainly Pareto has been a very big influence on me particularly over the past 20 or so years. And Pareto, well, of course, he started off as an engineer, and then he moved into economics. And around 1900 or so, I suppose it would have been, he became increasingly uneasy and curious about the limited sway that free market exchange had upon Italian society. That he was convinced of the beneficial qualities of economic liberalism and free trade, and wondered why hasn't that really carried the day? How to give an account for the limited sway that liberalism held over society at that time? And that led into his development of theories regarding sociology. He felt a need to move beyond the theory of markets into a theory of society if he was going to be able to understand and to explain why it is that markets held such limited sway over uh, people's moral imaginations and to do that Pareto developed the contrast between what he described as logical action and non-logical action I would say that The distinction between logical and non-logical is nothing like the modern claims about irrationality in economics it rather has to do with the different environments within which people act that Pareto thought that people always acted to do the best for themselves as they understood their situations but those situations differed Uh, you might say in a basic market situation whether you're a producer or a consumer you're in a position of forming a hypothesis about a future action either a product you're going to buy or a product you're going to produce and sell and you're going to try to do the best you can with your inputs either as a purchaser or as a producer and so you form effectively a hypothesis about which is going to be the best of your possible options and choose it and act on it <clears throat> and then you live with the value consequences of your choice that situation puts the actor in a kind of a sim in a situation similar to testing a hypothesis you take the action you hypothesis is that this is going to do well for you you have an expectation then you look at the results and you may be very happy with it you may not but it's your outcome when you get to politics on the other hand there is no uh, relation between between your action and any observed outcome you can vote for a candidate but you're not choosing an outcome by virtue of doing that. And so that led Pareto then to coin the term non-logical action. And what he meant by that then was that there's still a, a rationality behind the action, but that rationality isn't a rationality that is based on the consequences of the choice but is based on and connected with the, with the image that the person has of him or herself in relation to the images that other people also have. And so you, in, in politics, uh, can choose candidates or programs based on, on the one hand, what you think you might like to see or what you might think other people would like to think of you and so it's it's a it's a form of these days, will pray to use the term derivations to refer to that uh, these days we use the term rationalizations I remember for instance an example of a Paradean derivation or a rationalization I remember long long ago now my father Tell me to get home by what, 11 o'clock or whatever it is, one time. And I recall that I was having too much fun to get home by 11 o'clock, and so didn't. But then I knew I would have a terrible time when I did get home. <laughs> and so I had my car. I got out and actually changed the tire on the car, got my hands dirty and shirt. And said I had a flat tire and I was there I was given a rationalization I didn't tell him I was having too much fun to follow your rules because uh, I knew that wouldn't go very far and that wouldn't get me elected right but I thought well if I showed this dirt and had to change a flat tire I would uh, be more, more successful in what I wanted to achieve which was definitely not to be put on some kind of suspension for two weeks, <laughs> and actually, I was as you recall I was fairly successful. At it. <laughs> well, yeah, that was before the day of social
1: media, where oh. someone
2: could have tweeted
1: about seeing you uh, have fun. Oh yeah, uh. this, this,
2: this, this was back about 1958 or 59 or somewhere back then. Yeah.
1: I have one uh, let me ask you a question on the Pareto before I move to back to uh, Buchanan and Hayek, which is and i 've heard you so if I just ask you to, to uh, discuss this, this move from uh, the recognition of the mutually beneficial aspects of, of exchange to the the issues of politics and the issue of the the sheep and the wolves and and the interaction effect there that you see in that
2: sheep and wolves uh. <laughs> I, I, th- I think wolves have a very bad image in society, understandably. I mean, wolves eat livestock and things like this. But in terms of an image of society, though, in terms of what kinds of images do we carry forward in our thing, it's just like the parade versus the pedestrian crowd speaks to what kinds of images are useful. So I think the distinction between sheep And wolves likewise actually speaks to useful images because sheep require shepherds sheep do not do well on their own they're kind of dumb they huddle close together several can go off a cliff at once uh, and so forth and so you can't really think about sheep without shepherds and thereby you're not in the world of liberal governance you're in the world of feudal governments in some fashion or another Wolves, on the other hand, are self-governing societies. Now, like, uh, like human societies, quarrels erupt in those wolf societies, too. Uh, from time to time, there will be a quarrel over who's the head wolf. Also, though, you'll find that when a pack of wolves might, for instance, attack a moose, mo- mooses are huge animals, and one wolf will always have to go head-on with the moose and... might have a pack of several wolves attacking the moose. At the end, if the wolves are successful, they sure they kill the moose. But you're likely to find a wolf or two, or maybe even three, injured in various degrees. The healthy members of the pack will feed the injured wolves, nurse them back to health, and on the other end of things, the injured wolves will do their best come back to being a hundred percent wolf again and that I think is a very desirable quality of human society it's both a recognition of people or of wolves I should say wolves being a system of mutual support which I think is the ideal of a market-based society and that this um, mutual benefit quality brings along Obligations on both sides. There's on the one hand the obligation of the uh, well wolves to support, and nurture the wolves who need help. There's also the obligation on the wolves who need help to get back to being independent wolves again as quickly as they can. And I think that's a desirable quality of human society, much more so than thinking about the image of uh, sheep and shepherds. Um, So
1: um, from that sort of remote, let's go back to a concrete question about uh, Hayek and Buchanan. Uh, It's going to relate because you uh, in general uh, agitate against dichotomization or easy dichotomies. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the main tensions that exists between Hayek and Buchanan in a caricature, (laughs) is the difference between the invisible hand and the constitutional contract. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if, uh, so that Hayek would be emphasizing the invisible hand, whereas Buchanan is emphasizing the constitutional contract. We have to make a distinction there between rationality of individuals, rationality of a system, and then the rules, endogenous or exogenous. But you know, perhaps maybe just uh, uh, discuss how you view those different aspects of the uh, the story of the political economy
2: now you've hit upon a very perplexing topic and it's also a topic i might add that you treat wonderfully well in your own book on hayek that just came out that the um, you know, hayek certainly stressed the evolutionary uh, qualities of societies uh, buchanan wouldn't have disagreed with that and didn't but he thought it's i think it's more a question of emphasis uh, buchanan Thought that uh, sure, societies evolved, but evolution by itself is blind. And Buchanan thought that there should be some room for intelligence and democratic action. To recur to a title of a book that Frank Knight uh, mm-hmm. published about 1960, and you know, I think sometimes Buchanan, I think, tried to differentiate his product a bit. Uh, ...more, perhaps, than was warranted from Hayek. I don't think there was huge differences between them. But I think on any thing, I think... See, I, I'm, I've become very much a fan over the last 10, 15 years or so... ...of the old oriental principle of yin and yang. And that yin and yang principle is one that looks for a complementarity among opposites you might say and so I think evolu- like for instance many many people I've heard time and again I've heard people say that denigrate the idea of spontaneous order because societies aren't spontaneous there's always planning which is true but that doesn't deny spontaneous order because it says that individuals in society have aspirations and form plans to bring them about but the society itself then is this uh, evolving development among these uh, plans some of them complementary, some of them competitive and so the yin and yang kind of notion would say that what makes for good kind of evolutionary outcomes must be the competitive open competitive quality of the various plans that are set in motion inside of it. and so you have a recognition both of evolution and of intelligence at work in bringing about that evolution but it's not the intelligence is not bringing about the systems outcome directly per se uh, and that's a and so that's a much more complex problem of how you go from the system that we perceive at the level of the societal whole and the actions of people undertake that undertake at in various places within the societies and that's a a complex kind of problem I'm still thinking about Uh, many people are but I I think you're right I, I I tend to not like to work with very hard rigid points of agreement or opposition because i suppose i think many of these things through this yin and yang perspective are it's really it's the harmony resides in the contestation among opposites whereas i think the law of the excluded middle going back to classical uh, logic uh, pertains to certain very simple situations that right. something is either this or that; it can't be both. But when we get to the very complex phenomena, which was one of Hayek's big points, of course, is that uh, ideas of simple causation often are become very obscure, and you have to. There, there can be systems that do things like, for instance, people ask, "Was the 2008 recession?" caused by too much regulation or not enough regulation. An alternative line of approach would say, would, would say well, let's don't try to look to either of those things and ask whether there is something about the kind of economic system that we have in place, a very entangled mixture of business and government where you don't know what's what in many cases anymore when you get to big banks and so forth, that it's that system that has these built-in properties that are going to create certain kinds of instabilities. And so it's a system response, perhaps more than a matter of blaming either too much or too little regulation.
1: Yeah, I I think in your book, uh, The Peculiar Business of Politics, or Politics as a Peculiar Business, you have a great example in there of the relationship between a set of hotels and restaurants and whatnot and uh, you know, a river and uh, you know, the drudging of the river and the maintenance of the river and everything is gonna and the waterway is gonna be maintained by the public, but the restaurants and everything, they're the private, but how successful the private is is going to depend on how well the public is accomplished and how well the public attention is drawn to accomplishing is going to depend on how well the private enterprise can go for it. And as a result, you end up by having this symbiotic relationship as well as a parasitical relationship between the private and the public. And so I I think that's kind of fascinating because it does open up this idea of the complementarities of opposites and the clash. So, um, let me push you a little bit on this, just uh, to go to technical economics at some level, just for a few minutes. But you were a student, if my memory serves me correctly, of not only Buchanan, but also of Ronald Coase and of G. Warren Nutter. And uh, and as a result, price theory and the nature of microeconomics is understood by that uh, group of individuals. Um, you know, was part of that and Buchanan was writing or working on eventually the, the work that came into costs and choice and, and, and at some level, he takes an extreme subjectivist stance in costs of choice, but yet at the same time, he's not trapped in solipsism, right? Uh, So he doesn't completely go like shackle or something. He goes from that to the social order and coordination through the price system or somehow this subjective assessment of trade-offs gets communicated to the different actors so that they can then coordinate their activities, like in your uh, pr- crowd leaving uh, the stadium as opposed to the Marshall uh, governing over the band. Um, can you, you know, explain a little bit about the culture of teaching price theory at UVA in those years and then how that has maybe influenced your own
2: approach through the years? Well, one, I think, that predominant remembrance I have of price theory at UVA, and this was between 1963 and 1966 when I was there, is that, and actually you look for that, Hayek had this essay called Two Types of Individualism. And in that essay, Hayek points out that The what he regarded as a true type of individualism was a theory of society. It wasn't a theory of individual rationality, but was a theory of society. Now that kind of vision of economics as a theory of society was robustly held by those gentlemen you uh, mentioned—Buchanan, Nutter, and Coase. It was also held by uh, Leland Yeager, who also uh, was one of the prominent uh, faculty members there. They all shared this kind of uh, notion that what we were about was thinking about how it was that a set of people can live together in close geographical proximity and flourish uh, while doing so, recognizing that each person typically will have some things that they desire particularly strongly some beliefs they have particularly strongly and how this group of people who must live together can do so in relative harmony not full harmony that's impossible in societies but then what kinds of institutions people might develop so as to keep the conflict relatively pro, uh, suppressed but without going into the direction of some master voice controlling everyone else. And that was the basic problem of how to live together once you, again, construe economics as a theory of society, as Hayek articulated in 1948. And that was, that was the common view, uh, not only of all the faculty, but uh, many of the uh, speakers who passed through and and gave seminars there as well.
1: Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, one of the things that's fascinating about that is if you think of economics as a theory of society, you have to recognize that society always has these rough edges to it. Or as you said, quarrelsomeness, Mm -hmm. right? But quarrelsomeness doesn't necessarily mean non-orderliness in fact part of what it means to have a theory of society is how we get order out of our quarrelsomeness as opposed to getting the marshal to do things which would imply that we have economics as a theory of social control and therefore it'd be very useful if we envision the economic behavior as smooth and continuous and twice differentiable (laughs) right and and as opposed to jagged and and discreet and uh, and whatnot um so you just came back from Germany a few weeks ago. You were at a conference on the colloquium Walter Lippmann. Mm. Um, I just happened to come back from Germany last night uh, from a colloquium that was on uh, ordo liberalism as well and, and the relationship to Virginia School of Political Economy. And I was wanting to know, you know how you view the consilience between the Freiburg School and the Virginia School and then the con- how we might envision that for way we think about political economy today
2: i think there's a lot of uh of consilience uh, probably within that freiburg tradition certainly walter weiken was was one of the big uh, creators of that kind of tradition he had a a view of the constitution of of social order that was I think similar to Buchanan, similar to Hayek. They all were in that liberal tradition uh, that recognize, again, we face this common problem of living together where the only way we can flourish is by living together relatively well, but we have our individual desires as well. So markets are an important part of that. Uh, now the i think one of the unrecognized generally unrecognized facets of markets in this whole discussion over liberalism and socialism for instance most of the emphasis gets put upon the idea or the claim that liberalism will allow for a higher aggregate standard of living but socialism will give you a better, more equal distribution of income. Now, I think that whole kind of discussion misses the point of what's at stake here. And that, I think, gets back to some of the themes in the uh, Freiburg, Virginia liberal traditions, which has to do with what a social theory is fundamentally about is the organization of human activity and whether there is someone who directs human activity or whether people direct themselves and if socialism is a theory that requires some set of people to direct other people so socialism maps into the idea of shepherds and sheep liberalism Uh, actually maps into the idea of a self-organized pack of wolves where part of the process of the pack is going to be who's going to be the number one wolf and so Mm -hmm. forth until uh, someone wants to make a challenge and that I think maps into human societies and I think the big difference between socialism and liberalism then is that Under liberalism, it's both your opportunity in life and your responsibility to create your own biography. In socialism, you have no choice. You're assigned Mm -hmm. to a position, a status, and so forth. Now, you might be well-fed, but you're not writing your own life. You're not authoring your life. Now, I think that is a vital difference between the two forms of organization, whereas, as you've written about, yourself several times that as a standard of welfare economics there's no difference between liberalism and socialism the first order conditions for optimality are identical but I think there's a huge difference and that difference uh, was present in the understanding at Virginia in Freiburg as as well.
1: Um, So I have two more questions for you one of them is a follow-up I think of that which is that um, So um, I don't think it's been published yet, but a reprint, a republication of your to promote the general welfare is coming out. And uh, that book was originally published, I think, in 1991. Is that correct? 89. 89. So in 1989. And uh, um, as it was getting republished and you reread it again, how do you see the differences between the times in 1989 and the times today for the general message that you are presenting in that, in that book?
2: Well, I wrote a short forward to the uh, new edition where I said that the book itself, I didn't disagree with anything I had in there. The uh, Sure, there were some tables and some data. Yeah that should be brought up, although I I couldn't change the text. Uh, But so that was dated, but the kinds of principles and arguments hadn't changed a bit. I think the one place I said that I would do differently was I would I more fully have now have recognized this idea about the entanglement of the political and the economic within society. I even mentioned, I was surprised until I went back and read it, that I started the preface of that 1989 book by saying this book is not really a book about the welfare state, it's a book about political economy. And that the same principles that uh, govern welfare uh, programs govern such things as the payment of $200 to build toilet seats for the army mm-hmm. and there, the same principles were at play and since then I've come to recognize that ever more strongly about this entangled uh, nature of the system of political economy that we've developed where governments are up in the vicinity of not only say 40 or so percent of aggregate economic measures but I think more importantly that public ordering uh, is present nearly all commercial transactions somewhere. Uh, there's a hand of regulation that has a part to play in the determination, even of what gets done on markets, whereas a century ago it was public ordering took a back seat to private ordering. And indeed, you go back to your question about order liberalism and one of the principles or presumptions of the and also Franz boom uh, his, his l- lawyer uh, compatriot there at Freiburg was that the order liberal approach was one that private ordering was you might say the dog uh-huh. and to use a tail and the dog analogy and public ordering was it was the uh, tail and the uh-huh. idea was that public ordering operated in in support of private ordering. you find that for instance in Richard Epstein's uh, famous book, Takings, uh, where he pointed out that the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution allowed for governments to take private property, but required that taking to be, number one, for a genuine public use, and number two, for it to be accompanied by just compensation. Now, if you think about that, what you're saying is that public law can take private property. But by requiring that it be for genuine public use and that just compensation be paid, it's really linking the public action, public principles, to the private law principles of property and contract. And so any private citizen can take quote unquote private property by convincing the owner to sell it. to do that, you have to pay a price the owner regards as, as reasonable. And so that scheme of the relation between the public and private uh, uh, is you know, is reflected in my 89 book uh, and was present in the uh, Virginia Oral liberalism tradition as well.
1: Yeah. Um, I could... Uh, talk to you forever, Dick. I think that you have, uh, you raise such important topics and you have such a fertile mind in the way that you approach these. Um, But I want to get to the, your most recent project. Um, So I've been talking a lot about your, your past projects, Mm -hmm. but you're right now you're, you're writing a book and on the, on the uh, heels of actually writing a few books about debt Mm -hmm. and the issue of public debt Um, And also I should mention that um, when I was a a kid studying economics, um, you published a uh, paper, um, a more technical version of the paper in Kyclos and a more uh, sort of uh, accessible version of it in the Journal of Libertarian Studies on the relationship of what you would call the political manipulation of money and credit for profit. And a notion of political business cycles and boom bust and political business cycle kind of idea. And uh, it's my understanding that you're now working on this book on macroeconomics. And as a last question, maybe you could talk a little bit about the sort of macroeconomics uh, that, y- as you conceive of it, and uh, also, uh, you, know, the project uh, for research on volatility and turbulence and whatnot, as you see.
2: And this work on macroeconomics is something I've come in and out of uh, at several different periods over my career, and this book uh, that I am now will be developing over the coming semester in conjunction with the course I'm teaching tries to bring in some of the concerns with macroeconomics with some ideas that we've been talking about, uh, systems theory, um, the idea that a system is comprised of a humongous number of elements that cannot be totally planned or controlled. And each of those elements, moreover, it's a, it's a creative system and not a mechanical system. That it, it's not like a system. You can talk about an uh, electrical system in a car. Uh, we use that language, but that's the components of that system are, are mechanical or are engineered. When you talk about human population systems, you're talking about relationships among myriad individuals. Each of those individuals have minds of their own that are creative in various ways. And the, how do we think about the relation between macroeconomics in this view Is a relation of the entirety of a system to the pieces of that system now if you think about the macro micro relation as a relation of the whole of something to its parts you'll see I think immediately that moving from the micro level of thinking to the macro level is a move in the direction of increasing complexity. We can talk about what individuals do. We can have a theory of individual action, for instance. But when we get to the macro level, you cannot simply add up a bunch of individuals and get the macro, because there's all kinds of things that people together generate that they would not have on their own. That, uh, for instance, uh, think about the economics of Robinson Crusoe. You know, Robinson Crusoe is useful to illustrate many kinds of principles about utility choice and all that. But a Robinson Crusoe is very different from, say, a thousand Robinson Crusoe's being together on the same island you look at what does the one robinson crusoe face compared to the thousand well the one robinson crusoe notions of property rights are irrelevant contracts prices yeah. none of the stuff that we recognize is known to robinson crusoe those are all phenomena that emerge out of interaction amongst people and once you talk about emergence uh, there can be a number of different ways or directions that things can emerge. You have many people, you're going to have quarrels, but you can imagine various ways that societies might develop mechanisms and processes to handle quarrels among people, each of which might uh, carry life in, in different directions. And so, what I get from that is you cannot talk directly about one macro variable acting on another macro variable because macro variables take their uh, states or their values from prior interaction amongst people that micro level and you add to that the recognition that typically equilibrium economic theory assumes all Action is synchronized. And so, in looking at an economy, a macroeconomy, what you're really doing is watching a bunch of people engage in synchronized swimming. <laughs> uh, but that's not economic life, it's not synchronized swimming. It's more something like water polo or something like that. Yeah. And so, to think about asynchronous behavior, and there's still orderliness, but uh, that's the kind of problem and so you think about for instance such things as as you talk about your hayek book and such things as as 2008 great recession and so forth there is this question that's been often raised about secondary depressions and whether a injection of money be warranted to some extent or not and within the approach that i've been working on that question becomes very difficult to answer because suppose for instance just for argument's sake that a good share say a quarter or half of the population decide to uh, hold more money they just want to increase their cash balances and so that would uh, under typical presumptions lead to some kind of recession now some might say that, well, if you increase offsettingly the nominal quantity of money uh, to offset that fall in velocity, that you could be back where you were. Right. That's true for the quantity theory formulation, which is just an aggregate right. formulation at the upper level. But if you ask, that upper level manifestation comes about because there are particular people at this lower level. Who are changing their actions? They've changed their plans. And so the injection of the upper level doesn't necessarily map the lower level processes that are generating that upper level, which I think leads, in my opinion, to making an ever stronger case for free banking kinds of, of institutional arrangements yeah. that get away from the pretense that a central bank can uh, guide. The, yeah. the macro economy more and more
1: contestation
2: more yeah. and more always yeah. more and more
1: yeah rather than that okay well that is going to be uh wrap things up i thank you so much uh for taking this time with us and i can't wait to actually see your macroeconomics yeah. book what the title is it still keynesian can, i mean uh, after keynes or something like or what is the title working I, title
2: it has Ecological in the title, I think it's ecological macro theory now, and I'm debating between two subtitles. One is institutions emergence and something, and another one is escaping Keynes's shadow. Right, that's what I. Yeah, and uh, I'm I'm inclining towards the former as as a more neutral kind of thing, Uh, but I never. I guess, decide the titles finally until the whole do- yeah. thing is done and what it looks like. But that's yeah. what it's about. It's, and it's really, it's, it's uh, just like my book, Unentangled Political Economy. This macro book is likewise, all it's really doing is saying those classical theorists from Adam Smith going forward, David Hume and so forth, were fundamentally on the right track With respect to theories about society and if you look into modern economic theory as as your distinction between mainline and mainstream economics that there is that tradition that goes back to the classics and that has been kind of uh, lost amid the shuffle of the overwhelming uh, amount of cacophony coming from these uh, mainstream voices and what I'm trying to do in the macro theory is, is really uh, carrying forward some of the intuitions and insights that were uh, present uh, prior to the neoclassical period, along with some of the uh, reasonable voices subsequently, right. such as Clower, Leyenhoeffer, and, and, and so forth, and mixing in some stuff from, like, agent-based modeling, complexity theory, yeah. and uh, so forth, and that's
1: well, I can't wait to read it, and I can't wait to read uh, uh, the books that come after it. Uh, you are a uh, role model for many of us here, and we're so uh, uh, thrilled to be able to work with you, Dick. So thank you very much.
2: Well, thank you, and thank you for having me here. And also, it's a great thrill to work with you and uh, uh, be aware of all your fine works here, as well as the work, fine work that you've done in putting together the Hayek program here, too.